Welcome to the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast from the Institute of Transportation Engineers. Each month, we'll bring you conversations with thought leaders in transportation on the future of the industry. for downloading our latest episode of the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast. I'm your host, Bernie Wagenblast. In this month's episode, we're going to be talking about ITE's curbside management guide, as well as what else is happening on that topic. Our two guests are the best qualified to speak on the subject. They are Megan Mittman, former chair of the ITE Complete Streets Council, and Steve Davis, project manager for the curbside management guide and co-authors of the guide. Both also work for Fair and Peers. Megan, Steve, glad you could join us on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Why don't we start with a quick look at why this guide was necessary and what you hope to accomplish with it. Absolutely. So I can speak to that. I had the real privilege of being able to work with ITE to found the Complete Streets Council a few years ago. And ever since we started that council, we've really tried to make sure that we were coming up with something that was relevant and responsive to kind of really what our ITE members were talking about and really where the gaps are in terms of resources that are available from other groups and within ITE. And so we had a brainstorming session a couple years back at the Transportation Research Board Conference and said, what is that hot topic? What is that real area that ITE could some leadership on? And curbside management was it. And really in the sense that we were seeing a lot of parallels between the, the practice and the protocols, the techniques that we were using for complete streets in a curb-to-curb sense, and really being to extrapolate those same lessons learned to what we're doing at the curb to make curbs more complete. And so we found that to be a real high priority to respond to the needs that were there and create a toolbox and to, to really bring some best practices together. Well, certainly we're going to get into some of those more specifics. And maybe we can start off by talking about just how the use of curb space has increased dramatically over the last several years. It was uh, not too long ago when the curbs were primarily used for parking, deliveries, and maybe uh, use that for street cafes and such. But now we've got all sorts of things. Bike share is setting up in car lanes, parklets, things such as that. What are some of the biggest challenges that all this increased demand presents for cities and the consultants who are looking at curbside management? It's both a, a challenge and an opportunity, I think, right? So we have we have both things happening at the same time. So on one hand, absolutely, there, there's all these new stakeholders, and the stakeholders change by the day, kind of who we need to talk to and reach out to and, and understand their needs is evolving all the time. But there's also new data because most of those new stakeholders are coming with their own sets of data or their own opportunities for us to understand their demands and their needs. And so both diagnosing what, what the demand is, but then also being able to, to leverage the data that's coming with them is a real opportunity. But we, we need to address the safety issues of kind of all that conflict that's happening at the curb. We need to understand the equity and, and how to take this really important public resource and be making sure that everybody has access to it, that it's being used for the highest and best use of their community. We need to think about the revenue potential. And, you know, one of, one of the conventional uses for the curb is for parking, and, and parking often comes with revenue when it's paid parking. And if we're going to rethink and not just have the curb be for parking, how are we going to make sure that we continue to think about the revenue component of that? The ADA pieces and, and how we get access to and from the streets and, and as we repurpose the curb, how do we make sure that it's accessible? 
And then just really kind of thinking about um, the flexibility of the curve. And if we want to have the curve be for different users, different times of the day, and different days of the week, we have a lot of great opportunities with technology. But that's also a lot more complicated and, and how to make sure that we're understanding the potential for that and also just the techniques and, and the kind of nuts and bolts of how that would need to get rolled out is a challenge and an opportunity. Last year, 2018, ITE released the Curbside Management Practitioner's Guide, and along with it, three case studies. Now, the two of you were the authors of that guide and the case studies. Looking at this from a practitioner's point of view, what do you think are some of the biggest takeaways from the guide? I think it's important to frame that the intention of the Practitioner's Guide was really to provide guidance on best practice and uh, focus on getting people to think about the philosophy and decision-making process behind curbside management. There's really no single best solution that can be applied universally across different states, cities, other jurisdictions. So the, the guide really is focused on trying to come up with a consistent process for each individual agency to choose to reach their different solutions. Um, so with that in mind, I think one of the most significant takeaways from the guide and really across the industry in general right now is the need for flexibility. Uh, demand for our public spaces are constantly evolving and the ability for our curbs and our streets to adapt is really becoming more and more important. And this can take the form of things like flex zones that are discussed in the guide and utilized by quite a few cities, notably Seattle. It allows the same space to be serving different functions in response to those demands, uh, whether it be in terms of where you're located on the street or whether that be temporally. But the guide then, I would say, places a lot of emphasis on the establishment of those modal priorities and using priorities to affect the decision-making process and gets to the idea of being intentional and strategic about how we use our public space and empowering the decision-makers, whether they be staff-level analysts all the way up to policymakers, to make the difficult trade-off decisions consistently about that envisioned use of space. I know we frequently see things like a, a high-quality bicycle facility implemented along a street, but then that facility ends as you approach an intersection because there was a need to maintain vehicle lanes. But having a, a clear priority for bicycles along that street and then selecting treatments consistent with that priority can be the ammunition that an agency needs to be able to stand behind the decision of continuing the bicycle facility and not maintaining the vehicle capacity instead, if that's the right solution at that location. Now, the two of you are working as consultants on various curbside management projects. What are some of the trends that you're seeing when it comes to managing curb space? I'd say there are the tried and true trends in terms of things where curbside management has, has already been in place and we can really learn from that. So the classic example of that is airport, right? We all see that and, and we're seeing kind of the new technology being rolled out and it's kind of the easiest place to maybe dabble in this because it's the best place to have a single point of control and also really to think about the wayfinding components of that. So the use of geofencing, the use of very clear, like this is where you need to go for a drop-off and pickup, that's happening at airports. And we're seeing that extrapolate also now to event spaces. And we've had a chance to be involved in, in quite a few of the new arenas that have been opening, uh, most recently the, the Chase Center in, in San Francisco. And so really understanding that kind of the, the Uber and less TNC um, access mode to these arenas is only growing. And so the need to take really a lot of what we've learned in kind of the airport side of things and that single point and clustering and geofencing and wayfinding aspects and, and lessons learned there and taking that to the event space has, has been one of the themes. 
Another one that we're, we're seeing a lot is really the focus on nighttime activity zone and the great benefit that, that we see to people taking TNCs to get to those areas where or maybe there's going to be some alcohol or other substances involved and we really don't want people to be driving cars. So we've seen some great examples of being very intentional about clearing um, the curbside and making sure that there's designated places for to drop off and pick up and that the, the safety concerns about the conflict of the curb are really eliminated. Lots of times those are places where you otherwise would have one vehicle parking at, say, 6 o'clock when the meters turn off for the rest of the night. And so the ability for that parking area to be servicing those businesses is very low anyway. So being able to take a few of those spaces away and use that instead to have a safe and well-marked zone for drop-off and pick-up activity has been a real success and something we're seeing, for example, um, the District of Columbia has, has been using that as a pilot. The mobility hub concept is, is something else that we're really seeing a lot of momentum around. And this is the idea of creating what would feel like maybe a major subway station or, or another kind of major transit destination. But it doesn't have to be in locations that have major transit lines. It can be in locations that maybe have a rapid transit bus that's going in or even just locations that would otherwise have a park and ride facility. And it's just trying to stack a lot of the different modes on top of each other. And so we're able to see a real focus on first mile, last mile connection. And when we have micro mobility, scooters and, and e-bikes in the mix, having those be really stationed at these locations having Wi-Fi internet connection available. And where this happens from a curbside management perspective is the ability to really consolidate the demand for the curb into these mobility hubs. An example of that is putting Amazon lockers in mobility hubs. So there can be a less door-to-door -door delivery needs for the online retail, but maybe a better consolidation of those into centralized hubs. Pricing is, is another major thing that we're seeing in a trend for sure, uh, cities starting to dabble with the idea of pricing the curb, but even more so zooming out to be thinking about congestion pricing and how that can affect really the demand for the curb because we can change the time of day that vehicles are accessing or just the amount of vehicles that are accessing the most congested zones by putting a price on that zone itself. And that can really be important when we think about vehicle miles traveled and we think about safety exposure numbers, uh, just to be able to reduce the, the sheer number of vehicles that might be circulating in an area that we have a lot of vulnerable road users that are trying to also use that space. Looking for an opportunity to optimize the efficiency of the curb and so coming up with different productivity metrics is another trend that we're seeing, trying to really help us as you kind of make those modal priority decisions that Steve was mentioning. What are some of the calculations that we can use to be able to test to see if that priority is actually following through and, and if we're being successful on the measure of effectiveness there? And then another one that I would mention is just the theme of looking for win-wins. So where is there an opportunity to have all of the different users that really are kind of experiencing the chaos right now of all of the changes and demand for the curb and to have it be better for everybody? So an example for that is a pilot project that they've been doing in Washington, D.C. to really address the concern for trucks double parking in bike lanes. So a major safety challenge for bicyclists who then have to weave into the travel lane because a, a truck is double parked against the parking lane and blocking the bike lane. And so they've been experimenting with the idea of a reservation system, kind of an, an open table for the curb that great uh, delivery vehicles are able to go in and to reserve a space that they would then be able to know that they have access to and not to have to circle or not to have to be double parking. 
And they have to pay for that, but they're actually quite willing to pay for that because of that certainty and because they also don't want to have to be wondering where they might have access to that really important delivery. And sometimes, you know, having these right at the front door or very nearby is very, very critical. So it's a real win-win because now we've seen a significant reduction in the double parking and the blocking of bike lanes for these vehicle deliveries. But we're also seeing, you know, some additional revenue for the city as well as just more certainty on on the part of, of those delivery drivers. And so looking for more of those types of scenarios where the situation gets better for everybody, I think will continue to be a a direction that curbside management should hopefully be heading towards. As you talk about this, it seems mainly it's an issue that affects urban areas, but I'm curious, is this something that also affects suburban areas? Is it something that people in, in those kinds of communities should also be looking at? I think so, for sure. I mean, a, a classic example is still going to be the suburban town center. I live out here in the, in the Walnut Creek area and in the suburban part of the San Francisco Bay area. And we have several communities out here where they're starting to think about micromobility and whether scooters are going to be rolled out to be the first mile, last mile. The promise of those is kind of a, a way for people to be able to walk or bike or otherwise access the transit hubs or to maybe not have as much parking demand needs for downtown is really positive. But they need to be thinking about how they're going to prioritize the curb for better bicycle facilities, how they're going to prioritize the use of parking and staging zones for those devices, as well as the, the growing demand for, for people to take Uber and Lyft to, to kind of go out for dinner or to go shopping or things like that in, uh, on the weekends. And so even though these are much more kind of lower density areas, these are communities that are really having to try to think about the TDM, the transportation demand management goals they have, or some of the climate change mitigation strategies that are um, community values for some of them and and ways to complement active transportation or the placemaking goals that they may have by repurposing the curbs and not just be um, auto-oriented all of the time. So it's not a one-size-fits-all, and and there are certainly different tools and strategies that are going to be appropriate in different contexts, but we are finding that curbside management maybe has started in the larger cities and the more urban environments, but there certainly needs and opportunities for it in more of the suburban course as well. Yeah, and really, I'd say what it comes down to is anytime there are competing demands, then there is potentially value in curbside management. And really, that applies to almost everywhere. So I've seen cases where when you think of even the most suburban of suburban type settings, say a major arterial going through an area that's, you know, an auto mall with strip retail, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean there isn't a need for, say, bicycle usage on the major arterial. And so bicycle lanes of, of higher quality are provided. And then those bicycle lanes, in turn, conflicted with the areas where the deliveries for automobiles had been happening for that auto mall. So there was a real need for adjusting the way the space directly adjacent to the curb was designated And that resulted in a little bit of an unusual looking situation, but one that allowed a high quality bicycle facility that doesn't actually stay directly curb adjacent at all times because it allows space for those automobile deliveries to happen. So, you know, that's that's a, a very small scale version of curbside management on one particular street, but it's very much applicable to the kind of suburban environments we often see. Another question that we're getting from some of those cities that exist more in kind of that suburban environment is thinking about electric vehicle charging and also just readiness for autonomous vehicles. And there's a lot of really great early opportunities as you start to just get the toolbox together and to have some prioritization and and planning processes in place for curbside management 
to take first steps that ultimately will get cities more more ready and positioned for the arrival of autonomous vehicles um, when parking demands and needs and considerations and access will completely change, as well as the, the needs for more charging stations and, and thinking about opportunities to really promote electric vehicles. A lot of that may need to and should be happening at the curb and really planning and prioritizing for that as well. As you've worked on these projects, I'm curious, has there been involvement from some of the local businesses in terms of what their needs are? And what's been the reaction from some of these local users, not so much the government side, but the people who are getting the deliveries, the people who are making the deliveries, folks like that in terms of curbside management? I would actually say in general, the balancing the needs of those two parties is one of the greater challenges we see that recurs on these kinds of projects, because especially if a city has, you know, set up a modal priority that maybe doesn't prioritize on-street parking adjacent to as many businesses and maybe is taking away that space, obviously that's a very sensitive subject. So I think one of the things we've seen is that very rigorous outreach that started early in the process is very important to getting buy-in from your stakeholders, where the stakeholders may be the local business owners and may be the actual mobility providers. And in some cases, you can you can shift some of those things around. And it's talked about a little bit in the practitioner's guide, the, the idea of, say, on your your main street in an urban or suburban setting, you might want to provide the access for people and allow, you know, short duration parking that allows people to directly access businesses to keep those business owners happy. But you might be able to take needs like the drop-off space for TNCs as well as deliveries that have become increasingly important and move those, say, to adjacent blocks or just around the corner. Uh, And a lot of times those users find it more beneficial to have consistent access rather than quite as direct access. So really, I think for the most part, it's just been a need for ongoing conversations to keep everybody in the loop and understand that the decisions that are being made are intentional and and have everyone's best interests at heart, uh, as opposed to it seeming like an adversarial relationship between the different parties. And I think some of the lessons that we've learned over the years for things like shared parking, right, where you have really a, a more efficient way to think about using parking resources because not all land uses need parking at the same time. And I mentioned all the, the new arenas and kind of really thinking more strategically about kind of parking for those, right? So a lot of that's been like selling parking permits at, at office buildings near an arena where um, those office buildings are going to be empty at night, but but now you don't have to build a whole bunch of new parking maybe for that new arena. So the same thing is, is true for curbside management when we think more more creatively around time of day and day of the week use for the curb. And if we have a high demand, we worked on curbside management strategy for Taylor Street in San Francisco, and it's a big theater district, but it also has a major church that needs access to a lot of the, the parking facilities along the corridor on, on Sunday. Um, but then you have the local business delivery needs to happen midday during the week. And so really having a more nuanced understanding of the demand for the curb, sometimes it doesn't need to be each individual use needs its own dedicated strategy 24-7, but having a better understanding of how those can be more synergistic and, and how you can be more creative and more efficient with the use of the space that you have by allowing the use of the curb to change by time of day or by day of the week to really try to address the nuanced demand for it by the different users, I think really gets at that kind of community stakeholder collaboration and not coming into a project with the sense that you know what's best, but coming into a project with the toolbox and then a a listening and learning approach to, to really be able to match the tools to the needs of the community once you've heard from them directly. 
We mentioned how the guide came out in 2018. You and ITE are working to follow up on resources on curbside management analysis as part of a project funded by FHWA. Can you tell us how you see analysis and performance measures being important to curbside management? In many places, I'd say the demands on our curb and on our streets are kind of reaching the point to where most agencies, particularly in urban areas, can't really afford not to be strategic and efficient about how that space is designated at this point. So practitioners need to make informed decisions uh, based on the identification of suitable performance measures and subsequent selection of treatments based on a data-driven analysis of the real-world conditions. So that, I think, is what empowers us to stand behind the decisions that are made, especially where difficult trade-offs are required, but it also allows us to more effectively identify the types of candidate projects and treatments which are going to be successful. So, I mean, big picture, the goal is to be able to repeat the approaches and the decision-making that has led to successful outcomes and then identify the lessons learned from projects which may not have been as successful. The only way to really get there is through using a data-driven approach that aims at the performance measures we've identified in advance. I think back to the early stages when when most of the pilot projects in this space started to be undertaken, there was a lot of valuable experimentation that was taking place, but in many cases, insufficient before and after data was collected to truly make a determination of whether or not something was successful. And there were generally not measures of effectiveness identified in advance that you could measure against. So without those pre-identified performance measures, it was common for a project that might have had the intention of increasing space on the street for bicycles and pedestrians and maybe some more public space activation through parklets to increase congestion for vehicles and really be criticized in the public quite heavily because of that. Uh, But without the strategic approach that identified those goals and how to measure against those goals, some of those projects ended up being removed because we didn't have any way to stand up to that uh, resistance from the public. So the strategic approach really allows us to build on that and build an analysis that measures those MOEs. And we can, we can identify success, even if it's not what all users might consider the most traditional metric for success. And I'd say just to be more specific and to get excited about what's happening with the project with Federal Highway Administration, it really is taking the guidebook uh, that we had the opportunity to write for ITE to the next practitioner implementation level, right? And so it's focusing on a couple of different components. One is, what is the data? What is kind of the full landscape of of the different data sources that are available there? What is maybe some of the levers that local communities can be asserting in, in order to try to get the data that could be very, very helpful for them to be able to make better decisions and, and better evaluate the productivity of the curb and the, the prioritization of the modes of the curb. And then there's also the ability to use GIS, a mapping tool to be able to really look at different dashboards and visualizations of how curb space is allocated across time and to do some sensitivity testing of different curbside management tools to see how they might be affected in a local community context. So it's it's really trying to take some of the the planning level and and policy components and best practices that were documented in the practitioner's guide and now give an implementation tool and and much more, what is the next step? Now that you know about curbside management, now that you understand the promise and the potential and the need for it, what can you actually be doing on the ground in your local community? 
Megan's absolutely right. As we talked about before, the previous iteration of the ITE Practitioner's Guide was focused on philosophy and process. So the upcoming materials are really aimed at getting the information and data that the practitioners need to apply those processes and complete the analysis to do what we've been discussing here. We've been talking this month on the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast about ITE's Curbside Management Guide. Our guests have been Megan Mittman, former chair of the ITE Complete Streets Council, and Steve Davis, project manager for the Curbside Management Guide, both co-authors of that guide. Thank you both for being part of our podcast this month. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much for having us.